In 2016, the distinguished journal Shakespeare Quarterly issued a special edition titled Hashtag Bard, explaining that only seven years have passed since Catherine Rowe guest-edited a groundbreaking special issue of Shakespeare Quarterly addressed to new media. Yet within that short time, the new media environment in which Shakespeare productions and Shakespeare scholarship now exist has changed with astonishing speed. Just one example, the influence of social media, with its pressure for users to speed up their patterns of production and consumption, tribalize content, and engage in instant responses. In the process, blurring traditional lines between public and private, decentering received models of cultural authority, and focusing attention on the present. This newly emergent, constantly morphing media environment is rapidly reshaping how we experience all manner of content and create knowledge, including that of Shakespeare. Some of those changes are indeed empowering. Access to reliable editions of Shakespeare, high-resolution facsimiles, and exciting new software tools have significantly democratized study of the Shakespeare text, and DVDs, streaming, and YouTube have made available more performances of Shakespeare than ever before in history. There is a case to be made that there's never been a more exciting time to study Shakespeare. However, some of these developments have been less than sanguine for traditional Shakespeare scholarship. Now, then, is an opportune time before us to consider yet again both the benefits and challenges new media presents for Shakespearean production and scholarship, not in some effort to hold it all at bay, not possible, and to embrace new media with open arms, not wise, but to work out the terms of our divided duty, to quote Desdemona, in our own digital age, and to Shakespeare. All that from Douglas Lanier's preface to Hashtag Bard, a special edition of Shakespeare Quarterly, a scholarly journal recognizing the need to come to terms with the world of social media and the impact on Shakespearean studies. But we must not forget the very fundamentals, and that is what Shakespeare does best for all of us, for each of us. The bard who in his plays helps us come to terms with who we are as human beings, in our relationships, and with the world at large. King's College Theatre in Wilkes-Barre will present Timon of Athens in a production that helps us tackle the perennial human questions with a vision fresh enough to allow us to come face to face with some of the implications of the social media forces so pervasive in our lives. Jamil Powers, visiting assistant professor in the King's College Theatre and Arts Department, directs Timon of Athens, and we had a chance to speak with him and cast member Michaela Acre about a play that we don't see very often. It's known as one of Shakespeare's problem plays in that it was unfinished. Towards the end of it, it was one of the unfinished plays. That's one of the reasons. Another is that it was possibly co-written by, I believe it was Thomas Middleton. There's evidence to say that it wasn't just a purely Shakespeare production. Based on different scenes, they have very different tones. You can go from one scene to another, and just the writing and the tone of it feels very different. It's so almost kind of like it was ping-pong back and forth between the two. And also, in terms of defining what the genre is, 
And that kind of goes with the writing, too, is that some can be played as kind of pure comedy, while other scenes are very tragic. So it's, it's yeah. kind of like a tragic comedy, but it's really hard to place the genre of it. Yeah, I think the plot has a lot of different lessons within the tragedy aspect, but there's absolutely humor within the cast. Um, and I think something that a lot of us agreed on as students was this is one Shakespeare that was actually very easy to understand and to translate. Mm -hmm. Some of the other ones, we really had to depict the language, to translate, to really break it down. But this one, I mean, we still had to do that, but it made more sense and was cohesive. I think what's really wonderful about our Shakespeare's, too, is that we get to place them. And so Jamil decided that this year we are placing Time of Athens modern day, and it follows social media influencers and things like that, and it takes place in the fictional city of Athens, California. So that has been a lot of fun to play with as well, to modernize it and also help relate to our audiences. And what is the premise? Who is Tymon? Tymon is a wealthy lord. They don't really go into specifics as to what he does. Uh, it's just one of those, those ideas of kind of the bureaucracy where it's like they're rich because they're rich. And you, you have those people, then you have the working class. And he's a, he's a rich lord who's just very generous and kind of gives away all of his money and all of his resources just as acts of generosity because people like it. And people come back to him and keep flocking to him because he's so generous with these gifts. He'll just give like large amounts of gold or just very fancy gifts. And he does that because he truly believes that these are all of his friends and that they care about him. And that's why they, they come to visit him and come to these lavish parties. In fact, one of the scenes is just this giant banquet that he throws for the sake of throwing it. And you start to see the inner intentions of the people who are like his so-called friends. And they're really just kind of using him for his resources and his material wealth and Ultimately, you see where the tragedy comes in and that they ultimately kind of use him dry and he's left bitter, broken, alone and exiled into the woods. Yeah, the character of Lord Tymon is definitely placed on top and he gives because he can, but there also is a generosity there. You know, he likes the parties and the lavish lifestyle and you can kind of see the different social classes in the sense of his friends. And really, I think some of the lessons that are shown is that idea of how much is a friendship worth with money within social media, the good, the bad, the negative, and what people will do to get ahead. And definitely, I think, yeah, it takes a turn, which kind of shows that tragic part and follows Tymon's journey of starting on top and by the end is gone. So I think that's a very interesting way of showing it. Michaela, whom are you playing? I am playing Lucius, and he is one of Tymon's good friends. My character denies him money when he asks, but I believe Lucius has a softness to her in the sense that, you know, she she wants to help, she wants to give, but she can't. She kind of has to fend for herself a little bit and, and, and be selfish in a sense. And when she is first asked for all the money that time is requesting, she finds it kind of shocking. You know, she doesn't believe that this generous person, this person she's known for so long, uh, would want that of her. And so she denies him and, and almost, I think, does feel a little guilt for it. And then, you know, later on, Tymon calls her and, and the other two friends out on it, in a sense, for really not being good friends because they weren't there when he needed them. It sounds like placing it in, you said, Athens, California? Yes, it's a fictional town. Right. And so it does sound like this sort of theme would work well on the West Coast in a certain sense. Not that we're making cliches. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the idea for the concept was co-collaborated with my wife, Elizabeth, actually, or Beth Powers, and because she was really obsessed with like, social media, and in particular, Snapchat, and Snapchat going into TikToks, and TikToks about these famous influencers, and 
she was just talking about how there are these young 20-something-year-old people who literally just are social media influencers for their living. Like, they just create content, and they all live in, like, California and kind of portray that typical California lifestyle where it's a lot of money and fast cars and things like that, and they all come together and they live in this house, kind of like this commune. Uh, I guess it's called the Hype House. They actually have a Netflix series out about it now, so it really is a trend that's really soaring at least in the States, of these kids, for lack of a better term, that are coming together and creating this content. And I just felt that that really fit really well with the story of time in terms of when you put all of your eggs in the social media basket, if you will, you kind of start to see what people will do to make it to the top, right? And there's this idea of social status and having someone at the helm or at the top of the social media climate, if you will, Being someone who's so generous, how some people take that generosity and kind of latch on and pull him down to pull themselves up. And again, that's something that's just part of social media. And you can get away with it because it's so anonymous in a way. It's like everybody knows so much about you but knows nothing about you at the same time. Yeah, and so much can happen overnight. You could be on top one day and the next that can change. Mm -hmm. Even that idea of all publicity is good publicity, even if it's bad. You know, you're still getting likes, you're still getting views, your name is coming out there. It's very interesting to talk about those kind of social media influences, how they affect mental health, how they affect people's growth, especially these influencers who are so young. Um, and since they, California kind of seems to be that basis of, of parties and, and opportunities to go audition, it's kind of like that core place where these YouTubers have these houses and have this community that's being broadcasted all over the world. How are you doing the setting, the costuming? How do you all look? I'd say that our costumer, Jennifer, is doing just a wonderful job at really bringing that California-like vibe Uh, in terms of the costumes and things like that. And, you know, just really picking at what are today's fashion trends. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's a great thing about telling something in the contemporary and the now is that it's going to be very familiar to our audiences, especially to our younger audiences, because that's what they're wearing right now. Like This is the culture of what's happening in the present day. So, again, that's why social media is so great, because that is a culture that kind of lives from second to second. Now, I wouldn't even say day to day. Yeah, it's like second to second. Like what's trending now cannot be trending in 20 minutes or what's popular now could not be popular weeks from now. It's very unique because for our Shakespeare's, we're used to these beautiful Elizabethan beaded costumes and it's very casual. It's very comfortable, like the brands, Nike, sweatpants, dresses, things like that. And our costumer, Jen Ranieri, just did a fabulous job really picking out pieces for everyone's individual character. But that's still complimentary. Sometimes it's better to have a simplistic costume and really, really pretty lighting and stuff. So it's going to be wonderful to see it all come together. And I think very relatable for the people in the audience as well. I think there's almost a comfort level, too, of being able to relate to the actors. Yeah, and kind of building off of that, actually, Michaela, is great. And that kind of dispelling this myth or the stereotype that Shakespeare is not in the present mm-hmm. now. Because I feel like sometimes audiences get in the trap of, oh, well, it's lang- the language of it makes it kind of archaic and yeah. not approachable. So and putting it in the contemporary, putting it in the now, it's kind of inviting audiences mm-hmm. in and saying, it's okay. We can yeah. connect with this language, even though it may seem a little strange. He's speaking on universal truths that are still happening today. Absolutely. I think Shakespeare is, is timeless, and it'll be very interesting to see. And as far as our set, we have a wonderful uh, tech director, Lee Michaels, and our set has various levels. It almost is sort of like an abandoned ship. 
I guess think that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. We have one big platform rising, two on the sides. We have ropes around. Because really, at the end of the story, Tynan finds himself kind of washed away in this Californian beach. But it, it's a very unique set. Yeah, it's great because the top of it, it kind of represents, uh, it's very metallic. It kind of represents the present day, it represents now. But also, it's very, I'd say, like, expressionistic in the way, and that it, it suits the needs for everything. So whether it is a cave or whether it is, like, a fancy mansion, it kind of has this anonymity to it in a way where it can really shape it to what we need it to be. Since we have a party scene, we have all these different things, so it's a very good point. Is And the actual paint and metallic, it's, it's so detailed and so cool, so it has that high-class vibe, but if it needs to be a cave, it can be. And what's really awesome is that we have audience members on all three sides, which mm-hmm. is super cool as an actor, being able to get those different perspectives and angles and entrances as well. It definitely I think, feels a little more homey, and it feels more intimate within the audience, and it's a really, really cool set to play with. And it's just a unique challenge to work on the dress, because every person's going to have a different experience with the same show, depending on where they're seated. They're going to see certain key moments from some characters versus other characters. They'll be able to see everybody, but it'll just help to create that very unique experience for each individual audience member. Yes, of course it would be. And we remember that Kings has been using that open thrust stage for Shakespeare for decades now, and so that's quite a tradition. The question next would be, do you use incidental music to help enhance or create mood? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would say in terms of environmental music, kind of depending on where the scene is taking place. For example, the second scene in our show is set during a nightclub-themed party at Timon's Mansion. So kind of using the music to set the mood and set the environment of where we're at is is really instrumental in in bringing something into the modern day. Because, again, it it creates that visceral familiarity with the audience. Oh, okay. At at some point, we've all kind of been there in, in the nightclub scene. And like, okay, we get it. All right, they were out having this nice party for a couple hours, and now they're coming into the VIP room to cool off. It helps to create that environment. But then on on the other end of that, too, you have this nightclub, busy lights, music, things like that. And then shifting to time in exile and being at the beach where everything is quieter and it's softer and you hear, like, the sounds of waves. It it creates a very serene, kind of unplugged sense and tone about it. So those are kind of the two biggest extremes and everything kind of falls in between. Yeah, I think the sound definitely contributes to the visual idea that uh, something that sometimes you don't even notice either as an audience member. Our sound designer, her name is Ethan Stella, and does a really wonderful job, especially, I think, with the transitional music within. Uh, in Shakespeare, there is such a variety of tones and, and, and themes, stuff like that, so it definitely contributes to the overall production. You mentioned very well, Lucius, about Shakespeare's language and how it might be easier to wrestle with in this play. Are there, for you, any speeches that stay with you, that you're brushing your teeth and you are saying over and over, or you're walking to class and you hear something? (laughs) Yeah, well, my first uh, Shakespeare production was King Lear. And there was something about it that was just so enjoyable because it was challenging. It wasn't just reading words off of, of a script. I really had to dissect the character. For this show specifically, I mean, I've kind of learned the, the ins and outs of how to memorize, breaking down paragraphs, the punctuation, writing things down. I listened to my lines back. But no, absolutely, I find myself having to kind of pace around and uh, and get that pronunciation to be to feel normal. Yeah, I mean... I mean you have to understand what you're saying in order to to really act it out and feel it out. But there are some, once you kind of memorize Shakespeare's dialogue, it stays with you for a while. It really just kind of ties back to William Shakespeare as 
as an author, and that he was an actor. So when he writes, he writes for actors, and, yeah. uh, and that's what we teach. In fact, right now we're teaching our uh, Shakespeare class to our theater majors. You know, that's one thing we definitely stress about Shakespeare's language is that there's an energy, and the energy is always moving. Uh, that's one of the reasons why a lot of Shakespeare plays don't take a lot of time to do the blackout, change the scene, and then start another one. It's like that energy always has to keep moving because you are speaking in the language of a poet, and that has that forward-moving energy that moves really from the beginning all the way to the end of the play. Yeah. And on paper, it looks so yeah. long, but then once mm-hmm. you have it memorized and you're speaking it out loud, like it, your paragraph goes by like that. Oh, yeah, it moves know? so quickly. Yeah. It really does. There's so yeah. much passion behind what you're saying, truly. When you mention that it's a problem play, as a director, do you have to do something a little different because there might be some imbalances? You know... At first, I thought that when I was kind of looking through it, I said, oh, problem play. Okay, cool. Because it was saying that the ending wasn't finished, right? It was kind of an unfinished play. But then in reading it, it actually kind of has a nice ending. It is a little more, I guess, ambiguous mm-hmm. uh, than, some of, uh, than some of other Shakespeare's plots, especially in tragedies, where it's like everybody dies, and that's the end. Uh, or in comedies, everybody's married, and that's, sure, and that's yeah. the end. This one kind of leaves a more ambiguous tone to it mm-hmm. because it, it ends with is this impassioned speech talking about time and death and what that means for society as a whole. So it almost feels like it feels kind of epilogue-esque, but it yeah. is a part of the play itself. It's kind of like asking everyone to question what their take on society is. What what do you stand for, right? If you if you don't stand for what these people have done to time, and then what do you stand for? And this taking back, taking back control of your own personal identity. And honestly, that might just come from the interpretation that we're taking with it. It, it. it does feel, at the first read, ambiguous enough. But I think when you apply the concept and really see what story you're trying to tell, I think it ultimately shapes, that last monologue shapes into whatever you need it yeah. to be. And I think even though it is considered a problem play, it, it is easy to follow, especially in the setting that we're placing it in. And as far as the engine goes, it's, it's very much a loss and it's a little eerie, but the entire cast comes together at the end as one ensemble. So I think it has a lot of comparison even to, to the pandemic. When you lose something, when you don't have something, when there's loss, you want it so much more and you appreciate it so much more. And in the end, everyone feels that loss and comes together and kind of questions uh, their, their perspectives and their beliefs and their feelings sort of a thing. So it, it's empowering. It's not necessarily a happy ending, but I think it, it, it does tie it all together nicely. Mikaela Acre, who plays Lucius, and Jamil Powers, visiting assistant professor in the King's College Theatre and Arts Department, who directs Timon of Athens. We heard about a production that will run February 23rd through the 26th, with shows at 7.30 each evening, and a matinee on the 27th at 2 in the King's College Theatre, 133 North River Street in Wilkes-Barre, And speaking of social media, you can find out all the details on the website and the Facebook page. And that's facebook.com slash King's College Theater. Facebook.com King's College Theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E. We are invited to Timon of Athens, presented by the King's College Theater and Arts Department, February 23rd through the 26th at 7.30 each evening and a matinee on Sunday, February 27th 
at 2 o'clock at the theater, 133 North River Street in Wilkes-Barre. For more information, King's College Theater, and it's on Facebook, facebook.com, King's College Theater. <laughs>